Thank you for that beautiful singing. It just kind of opens up the glories of heaven a little bit, and I feel like I can just see even a little bit maybe how what God must see as He looks down and sees His people here, His children praising Him. And there's just something warming about that deep, deep in my heart. I'm really grateful for that. I love this place. I don't know how you felt but when I got out of the car and opened the doors, like this fresh, good earth smell. The air was clean and good, not like Beijing. And the trees are just beautiful. And I just could sort of imagine if you could just walk through a forest like this and imagine walking and you hear the birds singing and you're following a little trail and you, you suddenly come out to this great big clearing. And in front of this clearing is a river flowing and on the other side of the river is this tall castle-like thing reaching far up into the sky. And there's a, a drawbridge, and so you creak across the drawbridge, and you enter this castle. What is this place? And you begin climbing up these stairways higher and higher and higher and higher till you come to the very heart of this castle. And as you come to the heart of this castle, there's this long hallway, kind of like this right here, except that the end is a throne. And on the throne is a king, and he holds out his scepter to you, and so you walk over to the king, and the king reveals his heart to you, and he tells you a story. He imagines something. He imagines a world. He imagines the whole universe. And in this universe, it is a world of people who love him, love each other, who work together effectively, and that's his imagination. So he creates it. And you watch as he creates this. And his word goes out. The universe is created. The world is formed. And the people, well, they aren't so good. They fight and they don't get along. And they don't obey him. But God still has set his heart on this people. I've said, I'm sorry, God. I meant the king. <laughs> okay. You get the picture by now. But the, this king has set his heart on these people. He loves them. And so he goes down there himself to choose for himself a bride. And he goes down there to these people. And well, most of them aren't really too interested in him. But he chooses the bride. He sets his heart on the bride. And the king is a good man, a wealthy man, a handsome man. And the bride is beautiful. And everybody agrees that she is beautiful. But she isn't always so good to him. But they get along okay, and he proposes to her. She accepts his engagement, and then he returns back for a while to wait for the wedding. And while she is there, she sometimes flirts with other men. She, she really doesn't do all that well sometimes, but still his heart is set upon her. And one day he's coming back, and she knows it, and she's sort of preparing for that. And she doesn't know when he's coming back, and then... One day, when she's, she hears this, a knock on the door. What happens? And that's the story that I want to tell you over the next four days, is that journey of the bride. I'm going to talk about, I, have, I guess I have four sessions that I'm going to talk about. And the four sessions are going to be the seeding, the sowing, the serving, and the sending. I, you have some notes in front of you, and your notes are different than mine, and so I kind of forget what you have in front of you, but it should be a basic outline there. By seeding, I'm going to talk about the beginnings of the church. This is the part where the 
The groom courts the bride. The bride courts the groom. Then I'm going to talk about sowing. That's going to be the history of the church. And that's the part process where the bride prepares for the wedding. She is, she's, this is the engagement time. This is a time of sanctification, of purifying herself, of waiting. She is in the world, in the kingdom of the world, but not of the world or of the kingdom of the world. And then we're going to talk about serving God's purpose for the church. God's purpose for the church. Here, the bride is in this world, but has her, in her view, she has the groom. She sees him in her mind. Her mind is lifted upwards to the kingdom of heaven. And in obedience and respect, she is obeying and she is serving. And then finally, sending. And in sending, we're going to talk about the last days of the church. Eschatology. You should know that word eschatology just means referring to future events. This is the place where the bride communes with the groom. They join together. This is the most beautiful. This is what it's all about. The consummation of love and union. So let's get started here. I want to begin, first of all, by talking a little bit about a traditional Jewish wedding. Now I'm going to give you a picture of a traditional Jewish wedding much like it was at the time of Jesus. I have my wife to help me thank you because my fingers are cold like Pete said the other day. Not only my, my, uh, my fingers but also my feet and my head. So I have somebody to help me. Anyway, um, I, I want to look at the church in the context as, as Jesus' listeners would have understood it. They would have understood it according to their society, their norms, their culture, their traditions. And Jesus taught many, many things in the, in the light of their context. Of course, he did, just like we would do today. And so it might be helpful to understand the church, to understand, because I think the Jewish wedding will shed some light on that. So I want to talk about a little bit about that. First of all, it went, it went something like this. There would be a young man, just kind of like about anywhere in the world, who would set his section on a girl you can like. Sometimes there might be a matchmaker involved. Um, some, of this, some of these traditions go way back, I think we can see at least as far as Abraham. These traditions have varied a little bit in time. We don't know exactly how it was in the time of Jesus. And interestingly, much of these traditions have continued even to this day. I have a Jewish friend in Israel. I went through this process with her recently and asked her, she says, well, you know, there's a few little variations, but largely it's kind of like that today, at least among the Orthodox people. So these traditions go way back. They're pretty strong, and it was much like this. The young man, maybe there was a matchmaker involved. Sometimes that happened. I think you see Eliezer in the case of Abraham and Isaac. But in, a young man would see this girl and he would be kind of like, I don't know how, how you are, but uh, when I was younger, sometimes I would see somebody and that had my attention. And at some point, people begin to realize this is getting on. And no doubt, the family of the of this bride would be aware of this and at some point the young man was going to go to her house and there were some things that he took when he went to her house. One of the things that he took was a bride price and another was he took in his hand a covenant and in this covenant was the agreement that he would marry her, that he would be true to her and how he would take care of her. And that's what was written in this covenant. And he would go and 
Can you imagine what that felt like? <laughs> her house, her family, he left his father's house, he went to her house where she was living, and he would go there, and the family had been kind of expecting him to come, you know? And they knew that this was probably going to transpire, and he'd go here, and, and then he would enter the house, and I'm sure all the sisters and everything were kind of giggling and laughing, and they would be there, and they would sit down, and, and they would prepare a meal together, and they would, uh, they, as they sat down this meal together, they would take some bread, break it together, I can sure you can just imagine Jesus and his disciples doing this in the upper room. <coughs> Call it a love feast if you want. Feast of the groom, maybe. And they would drink a cup together. They would share it together. I don't know what they talked about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then things got a little more tense. But toward the end of the, of the meal, everybody knew what was coming. And so the young man, the first thing he, he would have to do is get out the bride price. Now the bride price sometimes was pretty high. In fact, much of the world today still has a bride price. In most Asian countries, young men still have to pay a bride price. A typical bride price from Western China to Nepal to uh, Cambodia, to you name these countries. I've asked all those places, and what I hear back is usually around $25,000. Now, these are poor people. That's a huge amount of money. That's, a year. That's about maybe 10 years worth of wages for them. So sometimes they wait quite a while to get married. Anyway, he comes up with his bride price. Okay. So he comes, he puts the bride price before the family. And of course, the bride price of Jesus was his dying on the cross, wasn't it? It's expensive. <laughs> Think of Christ dying on the cross. This is nothing. But the young man would have to do this, and he would bring this to her family. That's all. And then he would open the covenant. On the covenant would be written his proposal. His promise to marry her. What's written here happens to be Jeremiah 31, 31, 31 through 37, I think. And the bride and her family would observe this covenant. They would read it, ponder it. Now, I'm sure you're thinking of so many uh, allusions in Scripture to this. Well, Jesus was almost certainly using these stories to, to, uh, to tell truths that he wanted them to understand. And then, the scariest part of all, 
After the meal was eaten, the bread was gone, the drinks had been drunk, the covenant had been read, then he would pour wine into a cup. Just like Jesus poured out his blood. This cup of the New Testament is the communion of the blood of Christ. The decisive moment. They were sitting across the table. The young man would push the cup across to the girl. If she refused the cup, the agreement was, the understanding according to the tradition was, he would immediately get up and he would go out and he was never to return to that house again. But she had the option to drink the cup. And if she drank it, she must drink it all. Let's see what the bride will do. return to his father's house. He would go out, it would be night, and he would return to his father's house. And, but what would the bride be doing? Immediately, the bride would begin doing several things. This was tradition, this was strong, this was deep, much of it continues to this day. One of the first things the bride would do is she would begin gathering her sisters about her if she had them. She would begin gathering bridesmaids around her and they would prepare lamps and they would fill those lamps with oil. They would have lamps handy. They would begin trimming the wicks. Because why? Why? Because when the groom came, according to Jewish tradition, he came as a thief in the night. He would come in the middle of the night and he would capture his wife like a thief. And, I mean, is that exciting or what? I mean, they were romantic. <laughs> if I could do it again, I would love to do that. <laughs> you know, I, maybe some of you will consider that. I don't know if that's an option or not. <laughs> to steal her away in the dead of night, how exciting could it be? That, that was Jewish tradition. Okay, so she's preparing. So she has her oil lamps ready. She has them filled with oil. They're are they? Okay, they say they are. Okay, that's not all she does. She also participates. She does another thing too. And that is she immediately covers her head. Ah, yes. Even to this day, Orthodox Jewish girls on the engagement cover their head. Why do they cover their head? They never leave the house without their covering until the day that they're married. And they cover their head so that every other man knows that they, she's already taken. No other suitor may approach her because she has taken her head as covered. She never leaves the house without it. Okay? And that isn't all. She also participates in something called the mikvah. And the mikvah was a, a washing ceremony. It was a, for a sanctification, for cleansing, and she would participate in that to prove that she was pure and good. Now, this was a legally binding document. There was one exception that, in, according to Jewish tradition, that was sometimes granted to this official legal document of marriage, even though the marriage wasn't completely consummated yet. And it was 
If in that year the bride commit fornication with another person, then she could legally give him a writing of divorcement and annul that marriage. That was a tradition that was sometimes held in Jewish circles. Kind of interesting if that's relevant to marriage and divorce questions. Um, so, the bride, while she was preparing, the groom would go back to his house. And what he did was he would go back to his father's house and he would begin building a bridal chamber at his father's house. And this, neither the bride nor the groom had any idea when the marriage was going to take place. That's just part of the mystery and the romance of the whole thing. And he goes back there and he's building this bridal chamber and everybody knows when the time's getting about close. The bridal chamber's ready. Everybody's waiting, waiting, waiting. When's the father going to say, son, go get your bride? And they wait and they wait. And then finally the day comes. The bride doesn't know when. She's waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, she has her garments ready. Oh, they're clean and white. There's no, there's no pickle juice or, or beet smears and there's no meat in the pockets. And it doesn't look like her dress has been crumpled up in the bottom of the closet for the last six months. She's got it clean and spotless and pure. And she's listening. She hears a noise. It's not him this time. She's watching. She's waiting. The things of this world really aren't her interest. She's a bride about to be married, and she's not distracted by the things of this life. She's listening, especially at nighttime. She's listening. She knows he's going to come, and she can hardly wait. She listens, and she listens. And then finally, usually it was about a year in Jewish tradition, but nobody knew exactly. They deliberately avoided this particular time. Father knew. One night, the father would say, Son, go get your bride. The son would gather some groomsmen around him. And I imagine in heaven, Jesus gathering some of the angels of heaven with him. And they would go out into the night with a loud noise. There would be shouting. There would be blowings of the shofar. I don't know how to blow. <laughs> anyway, they would blow the shofar. They would shout and they would make a terrible ruckus going to get the bride. Everybody knew what was happening. This was a huge event. And at some point, the bride would go, this is it. Put on her garments. Light her lamps. She's ready to go. She's kept herself pure. She hears the noise coming and she waits for the knock on the door. Now, you can sit down. Now, what typically would happen is the groom would take the bride away like a thief in the night, pack her away in all this excitement and noise, this grand parade back to the father's house. And they would go to the father's house. The bride and the groom would enter the bridal chamber for seven days. You'll see this custom as far back at least as Jacob with his wives. And they would, they would enter there for seven days and I think it's an interesting notion. Some Bible teachers would consider the possibility that if the Holy Spirit is on this earth dwelling in believers and the bride is taken away, thus the Holy Spirit is taken away, then this world is left to its finest ability to reason and work without God. And what do you think will happen? An absolute chaotic tribulation. 
that's interesting if that analogy holds true, if there's significance there. And so he goes back and they have this, uh, they have this one week. And at the end of the week, then there is a grand feast called the marriage feast. And when we return to heaven, there will be a marriage feast of the Lamb. And so that's how a, a, a Jewish wedding was conducted. And I hope that that will help us to understand a little bit. And we'll keep referring back to some of these incidents as we talk about the church. What is this thing that we call the church? We've already heard it referred to as the ecclesia. And I like using that term because I think the word church sometimes comes with a sort of pre-filter. There's this feeling or the sense we have of the church, and it might be accurate or it might not be accurate, but if we go back to another word, we can, it might help us to understand it a little bit. Um, first of all, I want to say this. The church is not a building. The church is not a denomination. The, this is what the church is. I was in San Francisco a while back at a conference a few years ago, and I was walking down the street. I climbed up this hill, and there's this large stone building. I walk up the steps, open the large oak doors, walked inside, and there's pews and stained glass windows. I walked in there, and there's people praying on the benches there. And you know what? That was the church. A while back, I was down in Indonesia. I walked into this jungle hut, and it, it, the church was built there. The building there was built of boards you wouldn't use for a chicken coop, and the holes were stuffed with rags to keep the rats to slow down from running in and out. There were geckos climbing up the walls, and there were cockroaches climbing down the walls. There were dogs there. There were people sitting barefoot on the floor, eating their food with their bare hands, and I'm standing up there kind of like this trying to teach them. That was the church. I was in Beijing a while back and we had to go to a church and it was dark in winter and we were hiding because the police were watching. So we put on big old hoods over our heads and my wife and I, we sneak in this building when nobody's around. We're being really, really cautious and careful. Finally, we get up to the right apartment. Nobody's there. We sneak in the apartment. We go in there. It's packed out with young people, college students. In fact, it was so packed out, they finally, there's a little tiny table. On, just a little tiny table. This, could you just maybe stand on this table? Let them make room for two more people to enter this room. It was absolutely packed with people just standing up. That was the church. A week ago, I walked into a building where a group of people were praying up in the attic. And then we went downstairs and we heard a message that was at Cascade Valley. And that was the church. The church are the people of God who are assembled together. Sometimes we hear the word ecclesia means, it means an assembly. Ecclesia very literally means out calling or to be called out. Although I don't think we should make too much of those words. It's easy for us when we start looking at Greek or Hebrew to say, to, to try to get meaning out of the literal meanings of words like butterfly doesn't mean butterflies. In their minds, what did it actually mean? Well, it just it meant a group of people who got together. For, in fact, I think if you'll look in Acts chapter 19, you'll see that group of people there. And they're saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. That group is referred to as, guess what? The Ecclesia. Not a very good, nice looking church, is it? That changes our concept of what was in their minds when they said ecclesia. It just meant a gathering of people. I will probably use the word gathering more than assembly. I think they're both fine, except 
I went to public school and assembly was this meet, boring meeting we had to go to, so the word has kind of negative connotation for me. I like gathering better. I think gathering is stronger. It also has kind of a verbial sense to it. That is, there's an action involved. Not only are we a gathering, but we are gathering. We're gathering together and we're gathering others together as well. So the ecclesia, the call out, the gathering of people together, um, I, in the Old Testament, you'll see the word kahal, the Hebrew word kahal, which means it's the same thing. In fact, it's interesting, maybe I should just mention, this, the, the word ecclesia is used 115 times in the New Testament. The word kahal is used, I don't know, 300, close to 400 times, three or 400 times in the Old Testament, with very similar meaning. And the significance to it is this. If I say the LXX or Septuagint, do you all know what I mean? Okay. Maybe a little bit of uncertainty. Okay, let, let me just explain this much to you. The Septuagint was a translation from Hebrew into Greek. And it was translated because during the diaspora when Israel was scattered to the nations, they began speaking all different kinds of language. Alexander the Great came through. He made everybody study Greek. And so everybody at least knew Greek, at least as a second language or had access to it. And so the Hebrew scholars of the day said, hey, if the Hebrew people are going to read the Bible, we better put it in a language that they can understand because they weren't speaking Hebrew anymore. And so they translated it very, very diligently into Greek a couple hundred years before Christ. And that was pretty much the Bible of the day that most people were using. Now, in the temples, largely they probably still use the Hebrew, but the people, use, in fact, if you, if you look in the New Testament, almost all the quotations in the New Testament are actually from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew Bible. That apparently was the Bible that they were using. At least it's the Bible that seems to have been used by the writers to describe those quotations. And so, in other words, Jesus apparently quoted, and Paul apparently quoted, from the Septuagint. That's why it's really significant to mention that. And there's 75 times that the word kohal Hebrew is translated ekklesia in the Septuagint. So do you see why that's important? Now, I want to warn you a little bit of something here. I know we started off with kind of a flash, but this is a quite academic class. I'm expecting you to work hard and to follow a lot of definitions, a lot of terminology. I probably should give exams or something. I'm not going to, so you can rest. Um, but I do hope you'll follow very carefully because I will give you some words that may be new to you. <clears throat> okay, so let's look back at the, at the Old Testament and what we mean when we talk about the church here. And the metaphor that we most commonly see in the Old Testament for the church, Kahal Ecclesia, is the bride. Again, we, talk, we, we see that reference, Acts 7.38, there's a description of that Ecclesia in the wilderness. So we know very clearly that, that in the mind of early Christians, when they, as they thought of Israel, they thought of them as the ecclesia. So there's certainly some sort of connectivity between the word that we use in English church, or ecclesia in the Greek, and Israel. So what is that connectivity? And I know this gets on sometimes some, some theologically tentative ground. Um, and, but I want to cover it. I want to talk about it a little bit. But first of all, I want to just mention here how this notion of the bride is used in the Old Testament. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. 
Isaiah 54, 5. Hosea chapter 2, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you. There's that engagement. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and ye shall know the Lord. And there you can see, I lost my covenant already. Although you can see that covenant that God is making with people and the at the time of the engagement. The Song of Solomon, a wonderful love story, a bride story. And then we also see the example, I think, in, if you look in Jeremiah chapter 3, there is the metaphor of divorce. God said, Israel, you have, you've broken your covenant. And the metaphor of divorce is giving. I use the word metaphor because, and I would, I would offer to you, at least from my perspective, I don't think it was a literal divorce. I think it was a metaphorical divorce. It was a message that Israel would really get and understand. And I think we get and understand that too. One reason I would say that, thank you for my covenant. <clears throat> One reason I say that is because in Jer the last part of Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1, um, is written, yet return to me, says the Lord. We also have the story of Hosea and Gomer, which I think is a portrayal of God's heart. Hosea and Gomer, do you know the story? Okay, let me just give you a quick rundown of it. I love to tell the story long, but I can't. But the story of Hosea and Gomer goes something like this. First three chapters of Hosea. Okay, Hosea is a prophet. I could just imagine everybody said, told him, don't marry that girl, but God told him to, oh, yeah, right. And she was not a nice girl. But he went out there and married her anyway, and sure enough, she wasn't a nice girl. They had three children. The last child, some scholars think that there's some, some indication she wasn't even Hosea's child. Anyway, she apparently ran off the town with her lovers. When her lovers were done with her and didn't want her anymore, she ended up on the slave block, and Hosea went back and bought her on this, off the slave block and brought her back home. Such was the love of God for his people, even while they were yet sinners. He bought them. So, <clears throat> we have this notion in the Old Testament of the bride as being the chosen people, God's people, the ecclesia, kahal in the Hebrew. I would offer you to this. The assembly of Israel was kind of like a shadow of something to come. And I don't think a shadow is the best description, but I think it's just the one that comes to my mind right now. And it, there was more to be revealed than just Israel. And I think we could probably equally say there's more to be revealed in the church that we're going to discover eschatologically, that is in the future, someday. Thank you, Judy. And if you have this, I don't know if this will work very good, but you can kind of see there's a shadow there. And Israel knew, can you see that? The shadow? This is a hundred kwai, hundred yuan from China. It's, it's what I have in my pocket. It's only worth about $15, so don't think I'm rich. But it looks big, has Chairman Mao on there, but okay. There's the shadow of the thing. And if you knew there was a hundred quiet bill floating around here, or a hundred dollars, and you saw that shadow, you might be falling around. Because if the shadow's there, the real thing's there, isn't it? You know it represents the real thing. In fact, it is sort of the real thing, except it's just the shadow of the real thing. And so many of the, the uh, types and shadows, we say, of the Old Testament were just that. Hebrews talks so much about all those things, the sacrifices, that were just a shadow, something that is going to be revealed in more clarity instead of just a black shadow. Here's the real thing. If I handed you this thing, which would you rather have, this or the shadow? 
And I think it's amazing to me how many people even today will say, oh, I think I'll choose the shadow. You know, the shadow represents something beautiful. It's good. There's nothing wrong with that shadow. It's good and right. And it's just, this is a greater revelation of the real thing when I take it. And I would suggest that there may yet be more to come. I'm excited to find out just what all that's going to be. I want to talk a little bit about church theology. By church theology, I mean the, uh, the study of how God deals with saved people. That's the definition that I'm using for church theology. And there's a couple of kinds of theology. Now, you, I'm going to step on some ground here, and I have no idea where you are on some of these issues. You may be able to figure out where I am if you think you can figure out my biases. It's not my intent. I have a different intent than to try to persuade you according to some of these theological perspectives. One is called covenantal theology, which really short, oversimplified, is that throughout history, from the beginning of the world, there's been a series of covenants superseding or engulfing each other. Little different views on it. God has determined what he's going to do with his people, and he's kind of built on a series of covenants with them, and that's covenantal theology. That's a, a way to look at it. We see covenants in the Bible. We see this covenant, the New Testament, new covenant that Jesus made. And so we understand that concept of covenant. There's another which is called dispensational theology. Dispensational is a little different. It's kind of like little you know, jelly beans of time that you might come pop out one at a time. And so God works with people in this period of time like this, and maybe in different time, maybe even saves them very differently. So there's, there's different dispensation or jelly beans of time um, that are mm, distantly or maybe sort of related. Again, if I don't hit your theology exactly right, realize there's a continuum from that wall to that wall perspectives. I'm just doing a couple of spot checks along the way, so I might not hit yours exactly right. I think both of those try to capture something of the truth of what God have, how God has worked with saved people, but they probably have strengths and weaknesses both ways. Oftentimes we look at those and we say, which is the most convincing argument? Oh, they both have good points about them, but which is most, and we take a stand and, and that's okay. <clears throat> Where I want to go with this next is to talk about three kinds of ways in the, again, I'm looking in the Old Testament, the church in the Old Testament, and the thing I'm looking at is that the um, three kinds of theology I want to present to you. The first is replacement theology, which is a notion of, of the church instead of Israel. The church is a sort of new, improved Israel. Um, there's this, this covenant was given. It's fulfilled in the Gentile churches. Um, the modern Israel and the Jews are usually of not not a specific concern. The roots of of replacement theology are typically in covenant theology. If this, I hope this sort of makes sense to you. Then another kind of theology is called separation theology, which is the church is outside of Israel. They're completely separate organisms. They have different destinies, different purposes. The promises of Israel are not tran transferred to the New Testament church. Um, modern Israel, again, is oftentimes of little interest. Um, oftentimes even seen as imposters, modern Jews are in this view. The roots are in dispensational theology. There's a kind of in between, there's sort of something called remnant theology. Remnant theology says the church is incorporated within a remnant. There were, there were the Jews, and then there was, but there were some true Jews, and within out of that came something which was the church 
and uh, the promises of Israel are not transferred to the New Testament church, but they're relevant to the New Testament church, kind of like Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37, whatever those verses are, are repeated in Hebrews chapter 8 to Hebrews chapter 10. You can find those again. Um, and those references, I'm not sure. I just have them on my fingertips. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10. I'll have to look up the verses. But anyway, here's, here's the conclusion that what I want out of that is that Israel was significant in the past. And when we talk about the ecclesia, Israel is somehow connected in a piece of that. Exactly how we articulate that isn't so much my concern as we realize that they are a part of of this thing somehow that today we call the church. I think this will make more sense in a moment. Let's look at the New Testament. The Jews and the Gentiles, the, the gospel went first to the Jews, then it went to the Gentiles. By Gentiles, we mean the Goy or the Goyim, if you're familiar all with that Hebrew. And, by the, and some of you may know that just simply means the nations or ethnicities. In fact, I think if you, Abraham maybe have been referred to as a Goy himself. He was a nation himself. But, of course, God had a chosen people. And he, out of all the Goyim, there was Israel, who was a chosen and set apart. And so they're, they're distinctly different from each other. So the Gentiles are everything that was not Jewish. Sort of understand the notion, the Goy. So the, but the gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Goyim, the other, and all the rest of the ethnicities that are out there. Again, we see this note. Well, let me just mention this. Um, again, we see the church referred to as the ecclesia. Uh, I want to mention that the church is what sometimes referred to as Catholic. And I want you to understand that term because I, I want to be able to say it without alarming anybody. I do not mean the main, mainline Catholic church when I say this. I'm talking about there is one church, not many churches. It is the assembly of the saved, the gathering of the saved. That's what I mean when I say Catholic, small c Catholic church. Okay? There are many metaphors. Again, we see the metaphor of the bride in the New Testament. Paul tells the, the church of Corinth, he says, I betroth you to one husband that, she may, that I may present you a chaste virgin. And that is a pure bride to Christ. He's coming for a pure bride. Are you a pure bride? In your heart, do you know that you are pure? Ow. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Again, the metaphor of the bride. And we know in Revelations 19, we see the church is the bride. There's the marriage of the lamb. The wife has made herself ready. That is, her lamps are trimmed or filled with oil. Her garments are, don't have pickle juice all over them. And she's, she's ready to go. Revelations 21.2, we see New Jerusalem is a bride coming down from God out of heaven. There's this, the notion, the metaphor of the bride, repeatedly. There's other metaphors. There's the building of Christ, Ephesians 2. The whole building is fitly building, I'm sorry, the whole building is fitly fitted together. I didn't say that right. The whole building fitted together. That there's the notion of the temple. That is, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know this? I'm, I'm kind of fitting the temple under the notion of a building. So we have the bride of Christ, the building of Christ, the body of Christ with Christ as the head. The body speaks of unity. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 
Behold what manner, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself, Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, so we have the bride, the building, the body, now I'm going to move into the family of God, and in the family of God we have the adoption, the notion of the adoption of lost and unworthy children. Now, I have been in Indonesia, Philippines, and seen the garbage pit children, these are children who live out there because they're abandoned, there's no other place, they get a little bit of food out of the garbage pits, there's some clothing there, um, there's safety and numbers of them banding together, and they they really need a family. And if any of you want to go help, you, um, you're you needed. The call that I hear when I go to those places is, is somebody, could they come help? We need help. And so I just might share that with you, not to be emotional, but just so that you at least are aware about that. Okay, Psalm 68, six says, God sets the solitary in families. God wants those people in families. And He has set you in a family. Every single one of us is an adopted child of God. Every one of us was a garbage pit child. We were desperate. We had nothing. And there was just, there was no hope, no food, nothing but destruction ahead for us. And we could try to band together in little groups and fight our wars or whatever we did. But God says, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to set you over here. You belong to me. He has adopted us into the family of God. There's a notion of the visible church. The churches, people see it. That is, the preaching of churches, all the people who come to church on Sunday. That may be, they may be saved, they may not be saved. There's the notion of the invisible church. This should be in your notes, by the way. The church as God sees it. Those who are the redeemed and truly Christians throughout time and across the world, the church cannot be destroyed. Matthew 16, Jesus tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and I want to give you a little more notion here in the time that I have I think of the Lord's Prayer we say our Father which art in heaven our Father and when we say that prayer I know what you feel you feel it with me too I say our Father plural you're saying it that means everybody in this room is saying our Father it's what they're saying over in Cascade Valley and Columbia River it's what they're saying back east what they're saying down in Mexico. It's what they're saying in Norway, in Nigeria, in Argentina. It's what they're saying in China. It's what our father said and our grandfather said and our great-great-great-grandfather said too. And you know what? There's a sense of connectivity with all those people. When I say, our Father in heaven, there is a continuity that goes around the world and goes all across time. That is who we are as part of the family of God as adopted children. That is the church. The church is a people. It's a gathering whom God possesses who live together to glorify them. This is a people who gather to hear the word of God taught rightly. It, the church is a place where sacraments are administered. By sacraments, I mean those external things we do that have internal, real, practical significance like baptisms, weddings, anointings, and, and such. I think in the time that I have left, by the way, just so you know, I have, I'm going to present about 10% of what I have prepared. So I'm at peace with that. Um, Well, let me just 
see here. I think I want to take just a moment and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a little chunk of this. I think it's worth doing. <clears throat> Maybe not all of it. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, writing to the church at Ephesus, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Now 4, 1 through 16. I don't know if I'll read it all. With all lowliness, let me just tell you where, where I'm going with this. Now, I'm thinking about the local church. There is a universal church, and then there is also the local church. I want to focus now on this local church. These are the people that with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, there's that metaphor of the body, one spirit even as you're called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. I think I'm going to move on to verse 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There's the church. Till we all come to a unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm going to stop there. But the point I want here is there is something else we refer to as a church, and that is a local body, which is a place where people gather, where they grow, and where they're sent out to go. And we'll talk more about that later. There are, in theology, Bible teachers often talk about the marks of a church, and there's four I want to mention very quickly. They come out of the Nicene Creed, and just a tiny bit of history here. The Nicene Creed was the first ecumenical council. What I mean by that is, um, the, it came out of that ecumenical council. It was a, for the first time, there had been lots of little church councils, but there was a need for a little bit better communication, and the Edict of Milan had been, uh, had been given by Constantine, which changed the Christian world from being persecuted to, to being legal to be Christian, illegal not to be a Christian. And, and at many heresies were rampant, groups could communicate better together and they become aware of this. And so all these different groups who had all their divisions and lines, much like we do today, said, maybe we should get together and let's, let's just make sure we're not missing something. Let's talk together here. Let's make sure we have the fundamentals down pat. And so they got together to have this council at Nicaea and there were 1,800 bishops called. There were about 300 who actually were able to attend. But they came up with something called the Nicene Creed, which is very good. Actually, that Nicene Creed was refined. That was in 3, uh, Edict of Milan was 313. 325 was the uh, Nicene Creed. The revision of the Nicene Creed at Constantinople was in 385. So I'm, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on the date. 
Anyway, <clears throat> they got together and they added a little piece dealing with the church. They came up with four marks. Those four marks were unity. That is, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. When we say our Father, we mean all people who call upon the name of the Lord, who are saved, who are part of the assembly throughout time and around the world. That's the notion. St. John 17, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may know that thou sent me. Um, the notion of fellowship, koinonia, fellowship. Um, the second one was, the first one is unity, the second one is holiness. God expects us to be sanctified. The groom expects his bride to be pure. He's coming for a pure bride. Catholicity is another one. This is a little different term. Again, I do not mean the Catholic, Holy Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking here about there is one gospel and there's one truth, as Brother Norm talked about. I just... I won't spend time because he covered it exactly well. And that is there is one truth that you can count on. And it's in this book. And you can count on it. You can trust it. For all people, for all, for all time, there is one church. The next one is apostolicity. And I'm going to have to bring this to a close. Um, apostolicity just is that the apostles are the foundation of the church we could talk more about the foundation another time, but that is under attack today. The notion that you'll hear apostolicity attack today goes something like this, and that is, well, Jesus taught some good things, and he probably didn't know everything, but you know, taught from his perspective at the time. And, and the Apostle Paul, he took the teachings of Jesus and made it relevant for that culture, and, and we should kind of do the same thing. What Paul's, you know, what he did based on their knowledge and their time, of course, doesn't really apply to us. So let's take those things and make them relevant to us. And so there's probably nothing under attack more today in the Bible than apostolicity. So that term is important. I wish I had more time here, and I don't. Well, uh, yeah, till 11.45. Okay, is that my real time or my borrowed time? That's your hard stop. Okay, thank you. The church has an expression of herself that's important for us to understand. That one of those expressions of the church is to tell forth the plan of salvation. This is the character of the assembly or the gathering of believers is that they express the plan of salvation to each other and to a lost and dying world. We know that we are alienated, that God rejects us and our prayers because of sin. There is a notion that we are these warm, white, fuzzy lambs that are very lovable. And the truth is we are putrid, dead sheep on the South 40, and there's nothing in us that God would desire. Yet Romans chapter 3.23 says, that speaking of God's love, says that while we were yet dead, putrid sheep on the South 40. God loved us to death. Even death on the cross. We have a problem. It's called sin. And works won't save us. We are as lost, everybody in this room, aside from Jesus Christ, is just as lost as Hitler, and we deserve to burn in hell forever. That's what we deserve. But God has a solution, and His solution is grace. 
Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's possible that some of us still have sin in our life, even today, even this moment of time, there's sin in our life. And I'm telling you, Jesus loves you. And he wants to restore you. Jesus is in the business of redemption and he wants to redeem your life. He wants to redeem you not only from sins of the past, but He wants to redeem you to joy and happiness in the Holy Ghost today. So we received Christ to be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Another expression of the bride is the glory of the bride, that to be manifest in the church. I like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. You might write that down. We all with unveiled face, not like Moses who had to cover his face because he'd been in the presence of God and people couldn't look at him he had to veil his face. We with unveiled face, it says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What's going on there? Does that mean we're beholding God's glory somehow in this? Why a mirror? Is there a reflection? Is something going on? Is it possible that when I look in the mirror, I'm starting to see my Father in me? Can we see that in each other? You look at your brother or your sister, of course they look like they... Oh, dead, putrid sheep. I I don't see anybody who looks that bad. I'm so thankful for that. But you know what? In sin, that's who we are. But you know, you look across there and we all look a little bit better than that. Why? Because God is in the business of redeeming us. He's changing us. So you look in that mirror and what do you see? The glory of the Lord being transformed from image. That means increasing, increasing, increasing glory. How? By the Lord, the Spirit. That's what's happening. As you look at your brother and sister, do you expect perfection? No. Do you expect goodness? Mm, Well, you know, we're all just sheep. We all have gone astray. We have problems. But... We're all being transformed. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And we're expressing more and more the glory of God. And I just want to say, I'm seeing the glory of God in you. God is changing you. And it's so thrilling. And it's interesting to me because I have been in a lot of countries in the world. And I see old, withered up faces. And they smile and they gleam. And I can tell you, Jesus is there. He's been there. His fingerprints are all over them. He's changed them. You can see it in their countenance. I want to offer a little bit of an invitation. I don't know what's in your heart, what secrets you have in those rooms down deep in your heart. God still loves you. He'll still show mercy. Knows what you've been doing. Knows what you're doing now. He knows the sharp points of the little conscience that's eating away down inside if that's happening still loves you. Here's the question I have. For everybody, whoever is in this room, do you really know that you're saved? If you don't know, make that decision. Make it tonight. Maybe you could make, maybe you just need this level of recommitment in your life. Maybe with your prayer leader, maybe with a close friend that you have, or one of the staff here, but make that commitment. 
Another question that might even come closer for many of us, and that is, are you pure? And do you know it? He's coming for a pure bride. He's excited. Can you see the fire in his eye? He's excited. He can't wait for, for the father to say, son, go get your bride. The trumpets are going to sound. The people are going to shout. There's going to be a ruckus in the street tonight. And the bride's going to hear it. The time has come. And I'll tell you what I think. I think the time is almost here. Are you pure? And in your heart, do you know that you're pure? And if you're not, will you make that decision now? I will be redeemed. I will be pure. God gets all of my life. He is my Lord.